0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Inside Calhoun County podcast. I'm Richard Pyatt. This is the official podcast of Calhoun County, Michigan government. Today, we're visiting with the Calhoun County prosecuting attorney, David Gilbert. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, chat with you. This is, by the way, not a a new position for you. You have uh, been in the prosecuting seat for some
1: time. Yes, I was elected in 2012. I took office in January 2013.
0: What is the role of the prosecuting attorney?
1: We have a lot of roles. So typically people are told the prosecuting attorney is the top law enforcement officer of the county. We do not go out and make arrests. We don't have arrest powers. The county gives us the money. We can afford investigators to do some investigation. But typically it's the police departments and generally almost always it's the police departments that are doing the investigation. So one common misperception is if you can call the prosecutor's office, they're going to send out people to investigate. What we'll do is we'll contact a local police agency and ask them to investigate. And it's up to them to decide whether or not they're going to do it. But typically we get along very well with our police agencies and they will do it. Also, a lot of people think all we do is criminal prosecutions. That's not true either. Uh, you know, we have adult criminal prosecutions that make up a substantial amount of our time. We have the vast majority of our attorneys are are geared toward the adult prosecutions, but we also have juvenile delinquency cases where we have attorneys assigned and we have what's called abuse and neglect cases where children are being abused or neglected and we actually step in to represent, well, actually, we, we represent the kids, we represent the county, but we're, we're representing the kids to protect them against abuse and neglect, whether it be at home or someplace else. We have one attorney, actually, we have two attorneys now that do nothing but appeals. It doesn't matter if it's abuse, neglect, juvenile or or criminal, people appeal. So, we do that. We also do mental health commitments. We do a lot that a lot of people don't know about. We interview witnesses. We interview potential victims. We got a lot of different balls and a lot of different courts. We we have attorneys assigned to the various specialty courts, sobriety courts, all these courts don't operate or cannot operate with pro- without the prosecutor's permission. So, we take an active role in those. The courts are in charge, judges are in charge, but we take an active role in them also.
0: I've heard it said. Uh, more than once, that uh, cases are often uh, prosecuted in the field, that and by that they certainly mean that the due diligence being done before you get to court is where the difference is made. Is that a fair statement?
1: It is, and I'll tell you right now, we have some excellent police officers in our county and excellent police departments. When I was in private practice, I worked all over the state, and I got to tell you, the officers I've met in Callum County are, are just plain supreme. They are just very, very good.
0: What's the uh, purview you have on crime in Calhoun County these days, is it, especially with your uh, ability to look back you, just as prosecutor for a number of years, is it improved in your mind? Is it more difficult from the perspective of the
1: prosecutor? You know, it depends on how you look at it. When I first started in this office, you know, statewide clearance rate for violent offenses was around 50, 50% or so. And uh, our area it was a little bit lower than that. But right now on homicides, statewide average uh, clearance rate is around 55% for homicide rates. In our county, because we have such good law enforcement officers, it's, I, I would say it's over 90% for Calhoun County. Hmm. So, And homicides have basically they've gone up. We've become a more violent society, not just Calhoun County, the nation. Uh, state of Michigan is ranked as the second most violent states in the Midwest. Kind of ironic, but... Uh, wow. You think about Michigan, how nice it is most places, but we're ranked number two most violent.
0: That's incredible. Um, And of course, that means that law enforcement and thus uh, your office is charged with dealing with the results of that.
1: That is correct. And we do a lot. Uh, When we prosecute a case in Callum County, when I look at a felon, when I first was elected, I actually did some statistics on it. And I'm not a big fan of statistics because they typically don't tell you the truth. But uh, I did statistics and I looked at it. And uh, if I charge somebody with a felony, there's a 67 percent chance that person has already been convicted of at least one felony. And the average at the time was three point eight felonies. So, you know, it's not necessarily a question of getting the convictions. It's getting them to stop breaking the law. And how do we do that? Well, that's where the courts come into play. And, you know, we've got specialty courts. We've got these diversion courts, things like that. But once diversion doesn't work, there's always a the prison.
0: Yeah, you raise an interesting point because uh, over the last 20 years or so, uh, with diversion courts and specialty courts with certain focuses. There has been a significant change in the approach to uh, certain cases, hasn't there? I mean, we talk about sobriety courts and so on. I remember (laughs) almost 20 years ago interfacing with what was the beginning of the uh, drug treatment courts in Kalamazoo County, for example, which we were just reporting about at that time. They were new and now they've become quite significant, haven't they?
1: They have. I agree. I I was a defense attorney 20 years ago. I've been a defense attorney. Well, I've been an assistant prosecutor, prosecutor, and defense attorney for 35 years. And I've seen this change. There's progression and changing And When they first came out with sobriety court or drug court, I was thinking, no, this is just a crutch. But it actually works. I mean, if you get somebody to stop taking drugs, I mean, think about it. They stop taking drugs. You get rid of an addiction. They don't have to pay for their addiction. Where do they get the money for their addiction? From stealing from us or robbing us or hurting us. So you just you're you're protecting society against one class of crime for a whole bunch of time, and if you look further, I mean, okay, right now, one complaint I get every now and then is we have too many people in prison. Well, probably not. Uh, Back in 2007, we hit our height; we had over 51,000 people in prison. But in 2021, we just barely have over 32,000 people in prison. We've dropped by about 36 percent since 2007 as far as incarceration rates. But if you look at the people that are incarcerated, about 76% of them are in prison for violent offenses, whether it be rape, robbery, murder, violence, crimes against the person. And most of them have not done their, their minimum times yet. They're not usually denied parole. They get out on parole almost all the time when they're, well, almost. I'll say almost all the time when they're eligible for parole. So people are not being over-incarcerated. I do think our drug courts our sobriety courts and courts like that are working. Uh, if it helps one person, you're protecting a society.
0: Well, I certainly recall the the notion almost 20 years ago that uh, this is an interrupter to a recidivism situation that was quite significant. Folks with an addiction, Yeah. yeah, they were, as you point out, they were stealing to support that addiction, let's say. And that did not solve the problem. Going to jail did not solve the problem. The addiction was still there. And so I presume you see a a different disposition to the outcomes of a lot of those cases, given these types of courts.
1: Yes. And there's a caveat to that, obviously, because no diversion court is going to help if you don't want to be helped. A lot of people express the need, I want to be helped, and they don't really want to be helped. They just don't want to go to jail. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once somebody is ready to be helped, these diversion courts actually are very effective.
0: Well, it, you know, you started off talking a little bit about the perceptions of the prosecuting attorney and the prosecutor's office. I, I would guess that we get our perceptions from drama, from TV, from Dateline, you know, things like that. Uh, is that fair to say? And and does that skew our
1: view of your role? Yes, it does. It's very fair to say uh, CSI, these shows, I don't watch them because they're really irritating. <laughs> There's no way it takes you half an hour to solve, solve a crime with commercials and DNA comes back within hours, things like that. Then the reality is DNA takes months to come back. Yeah. Average is anywhere from three to six months to come back. Drug testing takes a while. Fingerprints take a while. Everyone thinks we're going to we're forensic scientists and we we have all these people running around finding all this evidence. And most of the time you walk into a courtroom, it's one person testifying. Now we've got body cams, we've got motor vehicle cameras, and our society has become very video oriented, whether it be on cell phones or ring doorbells, things of that nature. So we do have a different class of of evidence now. But, uh, you know, it used to be very, very difficult. Some people, well, where's the DNA? Well, he confessed. Well, we still want DNA. Well, okay. Do you
0: find that DNA is something folks expect now? Juries expect that?
1: Many times, many times, depending on the case. Uh, if you look certain cases, uh, certain cases, you're not going to have a lot of witnesses. It's a rape case, typically, you're not raping somebody in public, so they're going to. Juries do expect certain things. If if we give them enough information, okay, they may not need it, but uh, many times they want something else. But many times, people don't report a rape or a molestation at the time it happens, and many times, you know, we are proving it in other ways, and. And I think we've been very successful in doing that even despite the need for uh, all this CSI stuff. you know we've got body cams, we've got this very good detectives and uh, that's one thing I'm, I got to tell you I'm very I keep going back to it, but we've got some very good officers and they do a very good job investigating cases.
0: Let's talk about laws. Uh, we were chatting before the interview about uh, things that folks should keep an eye out for as far as laws are concerned. What would be some examples of that?
1: Well, you know, we just uh, went through a whole bunch of cases. They're called juvenile lifer cases. The U.S. Supreme Court said sending sending somebody under the age of 18 to life without parole is cruel and unusual punishment unless you can show that they are basically incorrigible or incapable of being reformed. Mm -hmm. So now anybody under the age of 18 that was anyone that was under the age of 18 when they were convicted of first degree murder, and that's the only one that has life without parole, um, anyone convicted of first degree murder. Uh, was eligible for resentencing and almost every person that came forward was resentenced to a term of years and our our courts made that term of years between 20 and 40 years as a minimum up to 60 years oh my so okay that's the law that's what our courts have said and that's what we have to do we uh, i believe had eight or nine juvenile lifers that were up and only one of them has received life without parole but that case is up for appeal And we don't know what the Court of Appeals or the Michigan Supreme Court is going to do. The frustrating thing is our legislature, everybody blames the prosecutors and courts for crime, but our legislature had proposed two sets of legislation, both in the state house and in the state senate, about making juvenile lifers uh, eligible for parole after 10 years. So if an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old, or a 16-year-old murders a police officer or a corrections officer or commits some violent felony and ends up murdering somebody, that person would be eligible for parole in 10 years, where other people wouldn't be. But the bottom line is they're eligible for parole in 10 years after murdering somebody. And it takes a special mindset to murder somebody. I I, I understand if you're 11 or 12 years old, you may not, you know. But most people, once they hit 16, 17, 18, they can appreciate that. But that was one issue. I don't know what's happened with that legislation there's other legislation that actually just came out that's called ERPA. there's one extreme risk protection act that's uh basically a lot of people were afraid of it when it was first passed it doesn't come out until february but it has it's it's allows the removal of guns from people who are considered to be uh, at extreme risk for having those weapons yeah. and reading it you know it, a lot of people were very afraid what was coming down because they thought it was a way to take guns but i'm looking at it basically if you've got evidence for a PPO, then you've got something, un- you could have something under this act if the person was deemed to be an ex- extreme risk. So over and above a PPO, they're an extreme risk. PPO can require you to not own or possess a firearm already. So all this does is gives the uh, police the opportunity to go in. They can get a search warrant to go into a house and get those guns. So it wasn't as drastic as I thought it was. The other one was the uh, the parent liability gun law. Uh, requiring people that know that there are going to be minors in their home, people under the age of 18 in their home, make sure their guns are secure. Uh, I think they say that that was done in, in response to the Oxford shootings, but I don't think it would have mattered as far as Oxford. This is this is something totally different. Uh, this is just making you responsible for your guns. It adds more liability than than it used to be. And we've had a case like that here in Calum County where I think it would have helped. Because, you know, we we recently had a homicide where juveniles had gotten a gun from a family member and used it, or allegedly from a family member and used it. And that might have helped.
0: Do you as a prosecutor see benefit in these these pieces of legislation in terms of, of what you know to be true when you're prosecuting cases like
1: this? Well, securing guns can help kids keep from committing suicide, and I think that's pretty important. I mean, if you know where your gun is. I don't want to take too much of a position on it because I can see the, the pluses and minuses of it. But mm-hmm. the big thing here is when I look at it, the idea behind Oxford was stop kids taking a family gun into a school and shooting up the school. Most of the homicides we have are done with illegally possessed guns to start with. Usually they're stolen. So this thing will stop the, the person who is getting a gun from a family member or a friend's house. But uh, if you don't know the juvenile is in your house, I mean, how are you supposed to know that you have to have your gun locked up? So it's not, and it's not required. You're required to have your gun locked up and safe from kids, from juveniles. It makes some sense, but uh, a lot of us would argue we have very responsible kids. Well, if your kid is responsible of taking that kid gun to school and hurting somebody or committing suicide with it, you've made a bad call. And sometimes our society tells us what we need to do with our kids. And sometimes we don't like it, but sometimes it's a good idea. How many kids have committed suicide with guns from their own home in the last few years? I see both sides of that.
0: We're approaching a new year. From your perspective, does that change anything in the way you perceive the coming months and doing your job, other than perhaps changes in the law like you've just articulated?
1: No, I think things are pretty much going on. Things really hiccuped over COVID. We are still catching up. The courts are still catching up with court cases. We have a homicide case out right now, and um, it was from 2021. Mm-hmm. So we want to get caught up in our cases, our criminal cases. Crime didn't stop during COVID and some of the violent crime actually went up during COVID. Hopefully it starts going back down again. But as long as the police are out there doing their job, we're going to have plenty of cases here.
0: Yeah, interesting you bring that up because we just chatted uh, in our last episode with Judge Jackanette and and he spent a fair amount of time talking about the process during COVID and how they had to pivot and and that sort of thing. And that episode will be... LinkedIn in, uh, in the show notes for this one, if you didn't happen to hear that, uh, before we go, is Calhoun County unique in your mind in terms of how cases are prosecuted? Is there anything
1: special or different
0: about our County?
1: Well, I can't speak for every other County, but we, we believe in justice for the, for the people that are victims of crime. We do our best to, to uphold that. And every now and then people will complain, well, you didn't quite do that here. Well, I'm sorry. We did what we could. But uh, primarily, when I came to office, I thought the idea was a plea to the charge. Well, you know, OK, what's my incentive to do that? Well, I'm not going to give you any incentive. Get the help you need or go to jail or go to prison. And you know that resulted in a backup for a little bit. So we had to make changes in that. We had to plea bargain. I mean, we issue about 17, 1800 felonies a year. We have two circuit court judges to actually try those cases. So they can't all go to trial. So plea bargaining is done. That's one thing that kind of bothers us. One thing about Callum County is number one is law enforcement, the climate of the law enforcement, the, the culture of law enforcement. They stand for what's right. They stand for the people They you can walk up to most police officers, almost any police officer and say hi and they'll talk to you. We've got good officers. That's one thing I'm really proud of. And my prosecutors, the people who work in our office are extremely good, too. They're just good people. They're dedicated. They work hard. And that's what you really want. Well, How many we've prosecutors? got we have 14 right now. We've got my chief assistant, myself but we're understaffed. So my chief and I, we both try cases too. We're understaffed. They're overworked, but they're doing a really good job. And they, they care. They care. We have a good victims unit that cares too. You know, we've got a good relationship with law enforcement. And when you've got all that, we've got other places for help that we that we work well with. And we make use of our community resources. They make use of us. So when everyone's working together, you have a great chance of getting things right and helping people in your community. Well, we have problems in our community, but for the most part, we got We got a very nice community.
0: Calhoun County Prosecuting Attorney David Gilbert, we appreciate this look in your office, and we look forward to the next conversation. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Anytime.